What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear David Gilbert read his story, Come Softly to Me, which appeared in the October 17, 2022 issue of the magazine. Gilbert is the author of the story collection Remote Feed and two novels, And Sons and The Normals. Now here's David Gilbert. Come Softly to Me. Upstairs, the sisters prepared by putting on their dresses, while down in the yard everyone drank Mott's apple juice and snacked on Ritz crackers squared with cheddar. Afterward, they'd have a proper meal. Lily had brought six pies, Eleanor pasta salad and lentils with sweet potatoes. Louise's son, Charlie, would man the grill. There'd be enough to drink, that was for sure, and maybe something to smoke thanks to the dispensaries in nearby Great Barrington. Come night, Jasper, Lily's grandson, would play guitar, and Louis, the son of Benjamin, the sister's cousin, would light the bonfire, once his father's job. Oh, Benjamin. He'd been cremated with his healing crystals still clenched in his hands. The bonfire, nowadays, was confined to the copper fire pit at Louise's house, but they'd managed to get the flames up high. Then they'd shoot Roman candles and bottle rockets brought by whoever had traveled from or through a fireworks state. Jasper would pick up his mandolin, and Philip, Lily's son, would grab Jasper's guitar, and Louise would sing, and then Lily would sing, and Eleanor would never sing, but she might yowl and grab her crotch, and maybe this place would start to feel like the old place. The biggest thing missing was the massive weeping beach. The interior of its hoop skirt canopy had acted as the sisters' sanctum sanctorum. It was from there that they used to emerge in their dresses, led by Benjamin, beating on the same small drum he had beaten on since he was eight. But after mom and dad died, the sisters couldn't agree on what to do with the old place. What with the hassles of upkeep and the estate taxes, the property taxes too, so they sold it to a rich couple who were semi-famous for their wealth. Eleanor would sometimes Google them and scroll through pictures of the man and woman at various parties and galas, emailing the choicest of these photos to Lily and Louise, as if she were putting pins into voodoo dolls. Eleanor hadn't wanted to sell. Eleanor had even thought about burning the house down, on her own, the final bonfire. But no matter. The rich couple bulldozed the house anyway. The ceilings were probably too low, something Lily had always noticed. How dark and claustrophobic it could get inside, with all the paneling and beams. On Google Earth, the new house resembled three Monopoly hotels jammed together. A six-hole golf course took up the meadow where Mom had painted her watercolors 
and Dad had trotted his collection of horse-drawn carriages, where K.K., the oldest sister, the dead sister, liked to roll in the high grass and collect ticks, tracking their transformation into blood-engorged skin tags. K.K., the amateur naturalist, curious and unafraid. Then she put a match to them, and Lily would shriek. But the weeping beach still maintained its central spot. Through the peephole of Google, it resembled butter lettuce. The sisters' names were carved on the trunk, as were Benjamin's and Luke's, Benjamin's older brother, who drowned in the Maldives when Jimmy Carter was president. Up high in the tree, Luke had once nailed a sachet filled with K.K.'s hair and fingernail clippings and a piece of gum recently chewed, the sisters ordering him to go higher, and Luke, as always, obliging. Down in the yard, the old RCA Victor started up, connected to the outlet by an extension cord plugged into an extension cord plugged into an extension cord. Dom, 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 do, dom, do, be, do, dom, 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 do, dom, do, be, do. Eleanor's ex-husband, Mickey, couldn't help smiling. Always the Fleetwoods. It had been 13 years since he'd heard this otherworldly song. He glanced around, searching for someone who might be equally pleased. The goddamn Fleetwoods. But no one else had a similar spark. For the most part, Mickey stayed close to his son and daughter, Ash and Star, and their respective partners, Addie and Martha, while his five grandchildren ran around with the younger grandchildren, the group playing some game involving pine cones and sticks, and a pillowcase slipped over the head of whoever was it. Mickey still had his peg tube in, but he was making a happy return to solid foods, like those Ritz crackers squared with cheddar, Mickey flipping the cheese to the other side so his tongue could get the full blast of salt. Take it easy, Dad, Star said after he popped in his second. My parents used to warm Ritzes in the oven. They'd spread butter on top. That's disgusting. No, 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 no. It was wonderful. Like, I can't describe how wonderful it was. It was done only when company came over, served on a silver tray lined with paper napkin. Mickey grabbed a third despite Star's eye roll. Would he take a bite of Charlie's famous butterfly lamb tonight? Or one of those specialty bratwursts that Arthur got shipped from Milwaukee? Mickey was a longtime vegetarian, but nowadays all bets were off. He'd been having intense fantasies about a cheeseburger with fries, a steak with onion rings, shrimp scampi and shrimp cocktail. For some reason, he was obsessed with everything shrimp. During the doldrums of his treatment, he had watched a ton of television with its endless stream of commercials for chicken sandwiches and pepperoni pizza and loaded nachos, which all looked so tasty he could weep. When Mickey wasn't watching television, he was either asleep or exhausted and moody as hell, his throat in constant pain, his taste buds shot. The radiation had also nuked his landmass of beard, so he was smooth-faced and awkwardly revealed. There was his neck, there was his chin, there were his cheeks pitted in acne scars, the reason for growing the beard five decades ago. And there was Eleanor, once more, onto the Mickey breach. It's like I'm a fucked up teenager again, he said to her one night. You've always been a fucked up teenager, she said back. Ha ha. Eleanor began to pour his dinner into the feeding tube. Fuck animals, fuck heart disease, just give me meat. 
Don't forget to do your swallowing exercises, she told him. Mickey sighed. The only difference between me and teenage me is I haven't had a boner in months. How tragic for you. Did she find him charming again, or merely a continuation of ridiculous? Come softly, darling. Come to me, stay. Mickey refilled his Dixie cup. The sweetness of the mods was thrilling. The doctors were impressed with his recovery. The peg tube would soon be removed. Yes, maybe he'd have a bratwurst. After all, he needed the protein. Everyone seemed happy to see him, Eleanor's family a forgiving lot. Many of them commented on his fine appearance. Mickey, you look terrific. Mickey, you look great. He had regained some of the lost weight, and his thick head of hair had proved impervious to the chemo. Even those acne scars came across as distinguished in the light of a new day. No doubt the family had been expecting something far worse, something they had seen before, whether in parents or friends or acquaintances on the street. That shift to when a person starts to wear the face he's going to die in. Mickey saved them from that sight. And while he was vain and susceptible to flattery, which had been his downfall in his marriage, as in other things too, the compliments poked him in an unpleasant way. He knew that people were just being nice, relieved for him and for themselves. Mickey, so good to see you looking so good. But please stop. There was a moment toward the end of the treatment, when Mickey saw himself in the bathroom mirror and froze, not in shock, but in tender fascination. It was his eyes. They had fallen so deep into the orbits that they seemed to pull in the rest of him, giving him a distant glimpse of who he once was. It was like meeting a dream only faintly remembered. He was Mickey, but he wasn't Mickey, not anymore. He checked his watch, curious when the procession would begin. The reliquadry had already been moved into place. The sister's father had built the vessel box thing, with help from Mr. Jones, the caretaker, the design based on a pencil sketch provided by the sisters. When it was finished, they painted it black. It wasn't pretty, but it was solid, and over the years had gained a certain noble quality born from ritual. Hey, Grandad. Mickey turned, and there was his grandson, no longer occupied by his cousins. Miles was all sweaty, but his stink was odorless, his demeanor suggesting a live frog in his pocket. How's the game going over there? Mickey asked. It's more of a story than a game, Miles said. And what's the story about? I'm not sure. I'm not in charge. They both glanced over at the grandchildren, cousins, who seemed to be escorting the pillowcased grandchild, cousin, to some kind of jail where more grandchildren, cousins, awaited, either as prisoners or as guards, the coming violence indiscriminate. I hear your father this year, Mickey said. Miles nodded. Well, that's a big deal. I guess. Miles was still looking at his cousins. I was father a few times, Mickey said, ages ago. Yeah? I was even mother once, which I liked very much. Mother seems better. Yeah. Mickey didn't know Miles very well, or his other grandchildren. Not because he didn't spend time with them, but because he never reached a space outside his own Mickey performance, which was also true with his children. 
Not that Mickey really understood this, but he could sense it with a kind of yearning every time he said goodbye to them. Granddad? Yeah. Can I see your tube thing? The what? The tube thing that you get food in? You mean my peg tube? Yeah. No one had asked to see his peg tube before. Mickey was impressed. Sure, he said. Let's check it out. Mickey glanced around as though he were about to show Miles a tremendous secret. Then he angled his body away from everyone else and lifted up his shirt. The peg tube was inserted above his belly button and to the left, the exterior tubing about six inches long and held against his stomach with medical tape, like some silicone lambry. Miles craned for a closer look. Does it hurt? It can be awkward, but that's about it. You attach another tube to this end here, which is attached to a bag you fill with, well, with whatever you feel like blending up. With whatever Eleanor feels like blending up, Mickey should have said, since she was in charge of feeding him, mixing in her various supplements, the herbs and roots and tribal superfoods. So it goes inside of you? Mickey nodded. It's almost like when you're in the womb before you're born, how you get all your nourishment through the umbilical cord, you know? where your belly button is. This is like my second umbilical cord. And when I'm done, I'll, I'll have two belly buttons. Mickey was pleased with himself. He never thought of his peg this way. He smiled in hopes of getting a smile in return, but Miles was all business. Can I touch it? Again, Mickey was impressed. Be my guest. Miles extended his index finger, but then paused as if trying to figure out the best flight path. I don't have to use it much anymore, Mickey said as he untaped the tube and straightened the end for an easier greeting. My throat is much better. But Miles hardly cared. He was zeroed in on the peg-touching task. Mickey had a brief, awful thought. What if Miles grabbed and yanked? What if he spun Mickey like a top? Luckily, Miles was not a psychopath, but instead a rather interesting and curious boy who did the deed as advertised. Mickey, for his demented part, considered startling Miles by screaming or going into a fake seizure, typical Mickey shtick, but he managed to control himself and just say, and that's my peg tube. Miles nodded, then backed up. Okay, I gotta go, he said. Okay then, Mickey said, lowering his shirt. But Miles didn't move, the urge to leave waylaid. He just stared at Mickey, lost in God knows what thought, which Mickey was about to break by giving the boy a few soft taps to the cheek, something his grandfather used to do, something Mickey had forgotten he hated because those old hands seemed riddled with leprosy. But before Mickey could reach forward, Miles turned and sprinted back to the other grandchildren and whatever story they were playing. Upstairs, the sisters got ready, Louise removing Mom's Bonwit Teller garment bag from the closet, laying it down on the bed, unzipping it. The smell of mothballs instantly joined the air. Foul in practice, but in memory dear. Louise freed the dresses one by one, Lily and Eleanor each stepping forward to claim theirs. A shake of fabric, a quick assessment of condition. The previous year's damage hung on the dresses like a hangover, the sisters greeting these headaches with amusement. Shit, Eleanor said as she revealed a four-inch tear in the front of her dress. Wow, Lily said. I have no idea how this happened. Oh, I remember, Louise said, grinning. And of course she remembered. 
Louise was the unofficial keeper of memories, able to summon up, sometimes rather dubiously, myriad details from their childhood, whether the vacations to the beach or the vacations to the mountains or the vacations abroad, the birthday dinners at specific restaurants, the illnesses and injuries, the who got what for Christmas. She could also speak with authority on mom and dad's own childhoods, their various home addresses, their pets from hamster to Great Dane, their best friends at school, as well as the chronology of their relationship, how mom was charmed by the goat dad had in his New York apartment, a leftover from his fraternity days at Yale, a story all the sisters knew well. But Louise could name the goat, Tallulah, and the breed, Nigerian dwarf, and the cause of death, eating a poisonous houseplant, actually an oleander, Louise would have specified, and fraternity was Psi Epsilon, the apartment at 71 East 71st Street. Well, Eleanor asked, annoyed at having to prod for the embarrassing info, typical second-oldest Louise playing her sober advantage. But when she was young, she was the wildest sister. Like the summer she was nine and pretended to be a dog named Maurice, and Mom and Dad went along with the spectacle, Mom putting Louise's meals into a bowl, Dad getting her a collar with an inscribed brass tag. The Maurice exploit stopped only when she started to piddle in the house, after which Mom and Dad debated inviting Dr. Erickson for a weekend of intensive therapy sessions, for all the girls, they figured. The sisters leaned on Maurice until Maurice ran away and Louise returned. Sometimes KK insisted on a visit from Maurice. This was after she got sick. And Louise, then 13 and half embarrassed, would curl up at the end of her bed. Louise's grin finally gave. You were doing the vagina thing again, she said. Oh, God. Lily cackled. The sisters were cacklers. Damn it, I missed that. Louise turned to Lily, gleeful to fill in the Eleanor gaps. She was so close to the fire, thrusting and jerking about, that we were worried she was going to ignite right in front of us. And then she birthed the world a bit too vigorously and rip. But it was glorious. It actually seemed to inspire you, Louise said to Eleanor. I had to stop Arthur from putting his head through the opening and making it worse. More cackling. Please don't let me eat one of Jasper's gummies tonight, Eleanor said. Lily came over with a needle and thread, the thimble already helmeted on her finger. Or not a whole one, Eleanor added. Lily laid the dresses on her lap and went to work. She decided on a catch stitch, the XXXXX running down the front for all to see. It was their mother's style, part wabi-sabi, part kintsugi, though mom was ignorant of those ancient eastern practices. She simply wanted to acknowledge the repair, and never with cute embroidery, God no, just the stitch, humbly expressed, whether a catch, a whip, a slip, a pick, a stab, a baste, or whatever else she had up her sleeve. Sewing had been one of her many talents. She made all her daughter's dresses, for a while at least, including these dresses, ivory white, done for her own sister's wedding, the girls, the flower girls, and how excited they were, embodying the fairies of their fervid imagination, Alice walking down the aisle with Wilbur, Eleanor giggling over the name, Wilbur, oink, oink, K.K. whisper singing, Wilbur, Wilbur, always smelling of liquor. Lily was the only sister who took an actual interest in sewing. Together, she and Mom would tackle the annual restoration of the dresses. 
The alterations during the teenage years were the hardest part, as Louise and Lily and Eleanor got older and grew taller and curvier. Mom showed Lily how to add panels of fabric here and there, how to reconfigure the sleeves, the collars, how to extend the life of these ivory-white artifacts, creating a Frankenstein's monster of a flower girl. It was almost funny, though Mom tended to remain quiet. This was not her production. She was merely playing her part, the broken-hearted mother trying to be a good parent to her surviving daughters. But she did insist on using a different color of thread for every year of stitching, beginning with dark red in 1959, then royal blue in 1960, and so on and so forth. Lily took up the responsibility after she died, this year's selection, emerald green. Medic, Louise cried, revealing a split seam on the shoulder of her dress. To see the dresses was to see a calendar in Morse code. I can't believe how good Mickey looks, Lily said as she did her mending. Eleanor had been waiting for this. I know, Louise said. It's quite something. Separately, the two of them had talked to her about Mickey, but they were relatively demure on the phone, focusing on his health and prognosis and how Eleanor was an absolute saint to take care of him. Eleanor hated the saint talk. This was Mickey. Hopeless, helpless Mickey. There was no chance he could have handled this on his own. Plus, he presently had no girlfriend under his pseudo-beatnik sway. What else was Eleanor to do? Let Ash or Star get sucked into the burden? So he moved in with her. No big deal. Holding a grudge against Mickey was like holding a grudge against the weather. But whenever Louise and Lily were with Eleanor, the second and third oldest facing the youngest, they could converge into a single conspiratorial line. I love him without the beard, Louise said. It's striking, Lily said. It really is, Louise agreed. And he's eating now, Lily asked. He is, Eleanor confirmed. He's doing really well. That's great, Lily said. So wonderful, Louise said. Does that mean he'll go back to his place or keep staying with you, Lily asked. Ooh, good question, Louise said. Here it was. Eleanor shook her head. You two are hilarious. Come on, I like Mickey, Louise said. You weren't married to him, Eleanor said. I know he was a problematic husband, but maybe he's pleasant company now? Post-cancer, Lily said. Yes, post-cancer. He fucked my best friend. True, true, Louise said but he never tried to fuck one of us. And that's something, Lily said. Eleanor snorted. Seriously, there have been no stirrings, Lily asked. Stirrings? Eleanor placed her hand over her heart. Oh my, the stirring. Stop. You mean during the radiation and chemotherapy treatments and the doctor appointments and the peg feedings and the mucus and the mouth sores, the fears of infection, the keeping track of the meds for pain, the meds for nausea, the meds for constipation. You know, Mickey had a turd stuck for like two hours and it almost became an emergency room situation. Jesus. It was hilarious until it wasn't. I even tried Googling for a solution. Poop, trapped half in, half out, help. The sisters tried not to cackle, though Eleanor knew that laughter was the greatest change of subject. What she didn't mention was that she enjoyed taking care of Mickey. She had her moleskin notebook where she marked down all the details of the day, the progression of side effects, the calories taken in, 
even the movies they watched and the music they listened to. It gave things a mortal focus, a sort of physical poetry, if that makes sense. His temperature, his pulse and blood pressure, his hours of sleep. She had become invested in deciphering Mickey's body while he shrank further into himself. At times he seemed to be just an echo. And Eleanor loved it more, or loved the feeling. It was somewhat hard for her to puzzle out. The feeling was bigger than any she'd ever had for Mickey, and it wasn't some bullshit about grace or compassion or service for a person in need, not at all. She loved him for being sick, not because she wanted Mickey to suffer, but because she was back in the company of sickness. There was a warmth there, its own kind of simple conjuring, rubbing Mickey's head, clipping his extravagant toenails, cleaning him, and here the cure had nothing to do with her ministrations. With KK, she had tried peony seeds strung into a necklace, but with Mickey, it was all protons and cisplatin. Lily gave the dresses a final once-over, then removed the thimble from her finger. I think we're ready, she said. All right, then, Louise said. They began to strip down, the three of them grinning as they returned to those intimate sisterly spaces. Eleanor was brawless, as usual, her nipples famous in some memories. The grinning turned to giggling. Here they were, another year older. It seemed ludicrous. On went the dresses, slowly and carefully, as though the fabric were mined with explosives. Almost there, almost there. Phew. The fit was chaotic at best. They daisy-chained for the buttoning up of the backs and the tying of the pink ribbons and the bows. Then they adjusted the shoulders and smoothed the fronts and regarded themselves. The sight of these patchwork dresses in a confetti of stitches, the original ivory white, now a phlegmy yellow, should have been the height of absurdity. But instead, an unnamed solemnity entered the scene. Lily reached into a shopping bag and pulled out three flower crowns. Abigail and Felicity made these, she said, always amazed by her granddaughters. Ah, Craspedia, Louise said of the yellow-headed billy buttons. Lily and Eleanor shared a look, mostly amused. The sisters put the crowns on, using one another to fine-tune the placement. You look adorable, Lily said to Eleanor. No, you look adorable. We all look adorable, Lily said. They paused for a moment in their adorableness which was also sad, to be adorable, to be adored. Eleanor started to tear up, Eleanor tired and maybe extra fragile, Eleanor feeling in her stomach, in the deepest part of her stomach, the pinprick spiral where another awareness seemed to dwell, an awareness that communicated in an alien language of prods and swirls, like the childhood game of spelling words on a bare back. Eleanor took Lily and Louise by the hand, she gave them a squeeze, and they squeezed back, as if providing proof of their own existence. Then they started for the stairs. Felicity had run away again. Felicity under a pillowcase because she was deformed. Felicity forced into this role by Catherine, who at 15 was obsessed with Joseph Merrick, having read The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences by Frederick Treves and The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity, by Ashley Montague, and The True History of the Elephant Man by Michael Howell and Peter Ford. And of course, Catherine had seen the movie, 
Catherine weeping throughout. It was just so beautiful. He was so beautiful. Catherine watching it again and again, those sexy fucked up lips. Then she watched Eraserhead, since it was made by the same director and seemed similar. But it wasn't, not at all. Except for the baby, who was like an elephant man baby, horrible but also freaky cute, which Catherine totally loved. But mostly she was confused and knew that she was watching something adult, something she probably shouldn't be watching, something far weirder than any internet porn she'd been warned about. Still, the experience gripped her. It was as if she had dreamed someone else's nightmare, and now it was her nightmare. And Catherine was determined to take part in this sorcery whenever she had the chance, so she had wrangled the younger cousins, Catherine was a natural wrangler, and had them playing orphans, and the orphans were playing house, and the orphanage was run by sadists who considered themselves perfect angels. Catherine guided the performance, whispering directives into ears. Maya was the villain, and Jacob and Gus and Aubrey were her lackeys, and Wilma was blind, and Crawford was deaf, Esther a schizophrenic, Oscar and Booker conjoined twins, and Hilma had Tourette's, Laramie a terrible rash, and Matteo was a stutterer, Felicity aforementioned, and finally Hugo and Miles, who were ghosts because, as a rule, Hugo and Miles never listened to their older sister. You were murdered by Jacob, Catherine whispered to Hugo, like I care. In the next three minutes, frightened Esther, Catherine whispered to Miles. But Miles was distracted by a bird. Miles was often distracted by a bird. The bird was high up in a tree, its silhouette rapturish. It could have been wearing a trench coat with a sawed-off shotgun hidden underneath. Miles wished he had his spotting scope and his siblings. Okay, Hugo said to Miles. Now I dare you to go up to Uncle Arthur and ask him if he knows what coprophagia means. Huh? I dare you to go. I'm not doing another stupid dare. Granddad was enough, Miles said as firmly as possible since his older brother, like his older sister, could be relentless, the two of them treating him like a pet monkey until they got bored and threw him in a cage. Don't be a pussy. It was a hawk for sure. No, 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 no. Ask him what a hot Carl is. Probably a Cooper's. But Miles had seen dozens of Coopers, his life for coming two years ago at Mohonk. He knew them well, the dark cap, the blue-gray upper parts, the dense rufous bands on the underparts. This one was different. Miles curled his index finger into a makeshift scope. What you got? Hugo asked. Not sure, maybe a Cooper's. Hugo regarded the whatever for a moment. Then he went over to haunt Jacob, but not before punching Miles in the arm, just hard enough to let Miles know he could have been punched harder. But Miles remained in the bubble of the bird, this hawk was larger than the typical Cooper's. If only it would leave its perch and give him a clear advantage of its wingspan and tail. If only Miles had his frickin' spotting scope, because he was thinking it might be a northern goshawk, which he'd never seen before. A goddamn frickin' northern goshawk, right here, begging to be identified. And they were usually impossible to locate. Their habitat large tracts of forest, not backyards, not the edge of Aunt Louise's country house. Gossocks freaking hate people. No one else would be excited. 
Oh, his mother and father might pretend to care, their voices slipping into that annoying tone of Miles' indulgence, like his face was a cue card or something. Really? A northern goshawk? That's amazing. Every time Dad went birding with him, and Dad went birding with him a lot, Miles could sense his boredom, as well as his pride at doing this bonding stuff, as if this were some knock against his own father. See, this is how you parent. Dad pointing out every cardinal and blue jay and missing all the warblers. Maybe the goshawk was sick. Maybe it had aspergillosis, like Mabel from H's for Honk. Maybe it was dying up there in the tree, starving, unable to hunt. Maybe it needed help. Maybe it was even asking for help from someone like Miles. Miles lifted his arm in the style of a falconer. He knew it was a silly thing to do, and childish, like when he tried to wobble objects with his mind or flick the lights with a wink, like when he prayed to God because he was scared of not waking up in the morning. But Miles did it anyway, and he was disappointed when the goshawk remained in the tree. Or maybe it was a Cooper's, just a plain old Cooper's. And then the drumming began. It was metallic and thin and advanced slowly from the direction of the house. The mothers and fathers clapped their hands and yoo-hooed to break up whatever was going on with the children. Catherine went from irritated to pseudo-parental, guiding her cast toward the reliquadry, Felicity removing the pillowcase and revealing the deformity of flushed cheeks and sweat-matted hair. Miles's father shouted because Miles was in his own world again, Miles turning around and seeing his father and grandfather, Dad gesturing at him to get on over here, Mickey giving him a thumbs up. What do I have to do, Miles asked of his impending role as father. Just stand over there, Dad said, there being the reliquadry. You'll be great, Mickey told him. Just stand there? Yes, Dad said. And? Read what you're handed. That's it. You'll be great, Mickey repeated. Miles, quick check of the bird still there, went where he was told. The rest of the relatives gathered around as well, while a few, always the same few, remained on the sidelines. The reliquadry resembled a small black stage waiting for its production, and now the production was coming into view, led by Terry, Benjamin's son-in-law, who was striking Benjamin's old toy drum. Terry wearing a tri-cornered hat, which was his own addition, and not an addition anyone particularly liked. But it was typical of Terry. He had a belt buckle collection, so enough said. Behind him in single file walked Louise, and then Lily, and then Eleanor. They could have been connected by rope. To the bystanders, these women were grandmothers and aunts and mothers and great-aunts and wives and stepmothers and ex-wives and in some case old friends, but right now to themselves they were just sisters. An ethereal spirit seemed to carve a path through all that was familiar, their air getting closer, as if the past and the future were pressure systems meeting over seven acres in the Berkshires. Miles just thought it bizarro. Mickey smiled at him. His stretched mouth was like windswept bone. Standing there, Miles was pre-mortified, certain he would mess things up and everyone would laugh because Miles was ten years old and was meant to mess things up, was practically designed to mess things up. He could puke or piss himself, 
could scream and curse and strip naked and go running into the woods, and they'd all fondly remembered how precious Miles lost his mind. With every second that passed, Miles could feel his anxiety further its corkscrew into his stomach. The sisters arrived at the reliquary. Uncle Terry gave a final flamboyant bang on Benjamin's toy drum and stepped away, and in stepped Jan, Louise and Arthur's son-in-law, and his son Connor, the two of them in charge of opening the reliquary and helping the sisters inside. Jan bent over and took a handle. Connor bent over and took a handle. They gave a nod and pulled. It almost looked like the entrance to a cellar, but instead of going underground, the interior was 16 inches deep and divided into four sister-sized berths, with four corresponding portraits painted on the back of the doors, which over the years had faded more than the cave drawings in Lascaux, but you could still glimpse their mother's artistic skill. She had been unenthusiastic about this morbid project, choosing speed over care. My God, her daughters could be persistent, as they demanded she add a worm here, a bug there, a skull in the corner. Enough, girls, enough. But she did as she was told, because she didn't have the energy to disappoint them. K.K.'s dress was already arranged in the first berth, placed there earlier this morning. Its various moth holes were unrepaired, but it could still fit a 15-year-old girl. Not that Miles cared. He was noticing his brother, who was staring at him, bug-eyed, then shuddering, then grabbing his throat. Hugo would probably try to mess him up, maybe by coughing, maybe by doing one of his patented fake sneezes, which for some reason he was famous for in seventh grade. Miles wanted to know if the bird, whether Cooper's or Gosshawk, was still in the tree, but that would require him turning around, and that seemed like the wrong thing to do, as Jan and Connor were helping his grandmother and great-aunts into the reliquary. This took some effort. It was like watching someone sink into a very hot bath. But soon enough they were flat on their backs and snug, like a can of sardines, though Miles had never seen a can of sardines. Eleanor lifted herself up on her elbow so she could get a quick look at her sisters. As always, Louise was nervous and working on her breathing. Then, Mother came along. This year it was Lily's granddaughter, Lacey, who had had her travails with serious drugs and unfortunate men, and had been away for a while, but now was back, for who knew how long. She carried a picnic basket and grinned at these strange, excellent women and their strange, excellent witchy ways. Louise and Lily and Eleanor tried to hold still, tried to keep their eyes shut, but Lily was peeking, and Louise was practically hyperventilating, and Eleanor had the slyest of smiles. Mother took them in. It was hard not to cry and not to be full of wonder. How the loss remained with them how they celebrated the kinship of remembering, how the four of them had once sliced open their palms, left palm, right palm, and then clutched hands, at midnight, of course, during a full moon, of course, hidden under the canopy of that massive weeping beach, and they had begun to chant without prompting, without one of them taking the lead, just chanting, K.K. and Louise and Lily and Eleanor, the sounds never forming into proper words, yet everything had its meaning, and soon they were moving and speaking in what their father would have called an example of Huygens' synchronization, something about vibrations and coupling strength. 
Only Louise would have cared. The next morning, the sisters got into tremendous trouble, cutting their hands like that. And with what kind of knife? And how dirty was the blade? Their mother, so worried, borderline panic. So foolish, she told them. So, so foolish and reckless and just plain foolish. But seeing her girls now, mother saw that they were right, that all of this was right. Seeing her daughters laid out in a row, pulsing with stillness. First things first, mother removed the flower crowns and put them on their chests. Nobody wanted that digging into a skull. Then she opened the picnic basket. Out came candy necklaces, which she gently slipped around their necks. Then the fig newtons, two of them, positioned in the center of each of the flower crowns, followed by cherry tootsie pops, because the sisters all agreed that cherry was the only flavor. A bottle of water and a straw tucked into the hollow of one arm, a small flashlight tucked into the hollow of the other. And last but not least, a silver dollar in case they needed to pay someone for their hour-long journey into the underworld. Mother gave her girls a final appraisal. And here, Lacey improvised. Well, gals, she said, happy trails. Terry turned to Deidre, his wife. What'd she say? Happy trails. Oh. Jan and Connor restored the butterfly doors to their cocoon state, being careful not to slam them down. And, like that, the sisters were gone, replaced by a black slab. Nearby was a bucket of dirt. Whoever was in the mood could grab a handful and toss it on the reliquadry, the assignment most vigorously taken up by the youngest grandchildren. And now it was father's turn. Miles swallowed hard. Anxiety had breached his stomach, and he was filling up with, what was it exactly? It seemed more than nerves. The feeling was physical, but also empty, a nothingness that defined a space he hadn't known existed, a horrible expansiveness. It was like losing a tether, like the dream he had had of his head becoming filled with helium and he had to be tied down, otherwise he'd float away forever. Where was the thing he had to read? Nobody had given him anything. He was just standing there, like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the dumbass mile show. And there was his grandfather looking at him, his mouth trembling, his second mouth hidden under his shirt, and his brother was getting ready to sneeze and dirt was flying all over the place. Lacey! Beverly, Lacey's mother, whisper hissed. What? Beverly pantomimed, reaching back into the picnic basket. Lacey stared at her mother as though the world would never make sense, not in a million years, nope. But then it did. It suddenly did. And she reached back into the picnic basket and pulled out the spiral notebook. Yes, 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 like it was the greatest victory. And she danced it over to Miles. Father, she said, presenting it with a flourish. Miles took the notebook, the Pharmacon written on the cover in big block letters. It was the kind of word Hugo would like. Miles wanted to remember it. The notebook itself was obviously old, but it also looked like any notebook Miles used at school. The inside had only two pages, the rest of them ripped out, which gave the thing a finished quality. For sure, the handwriting belonged to a girl, it was in ballpoint, and the words were so round and clear, so immediate, it could have been one of Catherine's props. 
And then Miles noticed the birds, four of them drawn in the horizon above those blue lanes subdivided in black ink. They were probably ravens. Miles got ready to read. But they could have been crows. Now we are dead. Don't ask us how we are dead. We are just dead. Maybe we ate poison mushrooms, like the mushrooms we see all the time, but never eat because we think they might be poisonous, but they're probably not. Maybe they were, and maybe we ate them. Maybe we died laughing. Or maybe it was a snake who came to us when we were napping on the grass, and the snake bit us, and the venom killed us because the snake was poisonous and rare in these parts, but that didn't matter because we are dead from it anyway. Maybe we died screaming. Or maybe we just died because we wanted to die, and we knew we would be dead a lot longer than we would be alive, so why not be dead and get on with that part of not being alive? Maybe we didn't want to wait and wonder and watch animals and trees and birds and dogs and cats and mothers and fathers and sisters die without us, and what are we to do without them? Now that we are dead, we don't think being dead is much different from being alive. We know we will remember those we left behind who are of course sad and we want them to know they'll be dead soon enough and then we will all be dead together and won't that be nice. Maybe we drank poison like people do when they're mourning or when they are forced to because of something they did that some people think is wrong. But if we drank poison like hemlock, we drank it like medicine because we know they are the same thing even though only one of us was smart enough to know everything about Socrates and the other ancient Greeks. Maybe we are dead because she is dead. Maybe we died when she died after she was sick. But we are all dead now, all of us. Dead as a doornail, dead as a dodo. We are the sisters dead and we miss you and love you and are sorry, mother and father, to be the daughters dead, but we need to be dead and do not ask us when we will be alive again. Maybe we died whispering how we would never die, and here we are, dead. That was David Gilbert reading his story, Come Softly to Me. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1996. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Madeline Tien reads The Cafeteria in the Evening and a Pool in the Rain by Yoko Ogawa, translated from the Japanese by Stephen Snyder. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.